right? Here it says that the recording has started, but it's not putting the numbers of uh, one second, two seconds. Does anybody else have the, uh, the, the counter running? No, but it says it's recording. I think it's recording. Just says recording, okay. Yeah. Well, for you guys, this is Friday night, correct? <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> okay. Here it's Saturday morning for all the flat earthers. Um, and that uh, Todd has has asked a question about uh, fetters, most specifically fetters uh, four and five. And so, uh, re what we will do is I I will talk around them for a while and put them in context. And the first thing that we should understand is what do we mean by the word fetter? What is the word? What does the word fetter in English means? It means uh, something like hobbled or, or strapped down or um, uh, let us say that a, that a car is driving down the road, but it's got a hundred foot chain attached to the bumper. And that that chain is a real fettery. He can't move very fast. And if he turns a corner, he's got a real problem. <laughs> okay, so um, the word fetter um, is uh, Elisa. And the word kilesa is different than the word asava, but they kind of mean the same things. Um, the, the word asava has the quality of, of being like um, uh, a, a post pocket. Let us say that you got injured and it healed up, but it's still got some yellow around it. And if you take it and squeeze it, you can get the pus out of it or a pox or a blemish or a blackhead even or a boil this is what we would think of as an asava and that in that regard you can think of um, a morning's meditation is something like a facial where you're having all the blackheads pulled out one at a time one by one as they occur um and that this athava and the kilesa are very, very closely related, but they're used in different contexts. Um, and so uh, working with it in the kilesa, we talk about it in the sense of having 10 fetters. Now, uh, the first five fetters, uh, <clears throat> the first three fetters have to do with personality view, an attachment to right rules and rituals, and knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. Those three things together can be considered a knowledge base or a wisdom base. And that you pop these other two fetters in there and what you have with those first three plus these two is now the second noble truth that I 
when you recognize that, you say, oh, yeah, that's why all this stuff fits together so well is the second noble truth, ignorance. We work with first, and after we get the ignorance worked out, then we can really deal with the other two fetters of greed and ill will. Christopher, did you have your hand up? No. No, I was just saying goodnight to my son. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So we can see these things in the context of the uh, um, the two groups of fetters. We talk about the two groups of fetters as rupa and arupa. In other words, uh, the first five lower fetters are physical and are physically um, obvious. When you get caught in the brothel, it's obvious you're in the brothel, right? Okay, so the other five fetters, which in English we refer to as the higher fetters, are not necessarily higher at all. What they are instead is a rupa, which meant they are all mental. They're mental. And so we'll deal with that. In fact, uh, they're not strictly mental. When you know what you're looking for, you can see how the high five actually influence the lower ones so that if you have, for instance, conceit, then you're going to have jealousy. But the conceit is based with jealousy on I want something, I want to protect it, or I want to get it. And so there's the greed element, and the greed element is what will show up. Okay, so um, we can now go back and look at these first three fetters as something really valuable to uh, to inspect, uh, because that's where the knowledge comes from. And you've probably heard me speak about it before, um, that the the whole teachings of the Buddha seems to be wrapped around this one-two punch. Um, the entire Anapanasati Sutta is arranged around this one-two punch. And the one-two punch is knowledge and deliverance. In other words, if you can figure out how to get out of prison, then the doing it is a whole lot easier whatever that prison is, a physical prison, if you know where the tunnels are, <laughs> and sometimes gaining that knowledge of where the tunnels are mean you've got to dig a tunnel. And so those first three fetters may have something of value, but the Anapanasati Sutra, it, it, um, I'll, I'll do a small review in the sense of, First off, the Anapanasati Sutta announces itself as an, a very important sutta. And how it does that is because it starts off with an announcement that a great big meeting is going to happen on the next full moon. And then on that full moon, all of the big teachers, uh, all the best well-known monks are mentioned in there along with their students. 
And so Sariputta with 50 or so, and Mahamagala with 40 or so, and uh, Mahakasapa and Chanda, and all of them. And the fact, the one name that's missing here that's so surprising is Ananda's name. It's not there. But after this is mentioned, then he talks about the various groups of people who were here, including those who have um, attained nobility. He groups in one group. Then another group he talks about is those who have attained jhana, not the same group. And then he mentions a third group of those that are practicing the Brahma Viharas or metta meditations. And then he brings it together and says, and but now I'm going to teach you about Anapanasati that has great fruit and great benefit. In other words, we're talking about the fact that even in the time of the Buddha, there was a lot of variety. There were still people who were heavily into practicing the jhanas for the jhana's sake. There were those who were practicing metta for metta's sake, etc., like that. But Anapanasati is practiced now, he says, for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness. And then later, he says that Anapanasati is practiced for the fulfillment of the four foundations of mindfulness in a way that also fulfills the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambo Jhana. And, and this is where um, the strength of sati really kicks in, because here it says unremitting sati, just like we have anapanasati, satipatthana, and right noble sati on the eightfold noble path. When the sati of the eightfold noble path matures, it matures into an unremitting mindfulness, which means it keeps coming back often. You keep remembering to be here now. You like it so much. You like being in the present moment so much better than you like reminiscing about the work that you've got to do. You remember often to keep coming back to the present moment. And there we do the investigation and the rest, okay? And so we actually now do these seven factors of enlightenment for the fulfillment of knowledge and deliverance, this twin combination, knowledge and deliverance. It is so obvious when we look at it from the perspective of the fetters. That in fact, um, one of the things that I do is um, <clears throat> try to make good definitions of words and that the, uh, the word enlightenment, which has more to do with a scientific and um, a religious revolution of the 17th century, 17th, 15th, 18th, something like that, that time period that uh, had both the French Revolution and a hundred years war and the bringing up into Protestantism as well as science with um, Newton and his gang. Uh, Niels Bohr and the whole crowd of them, uh, James Watt. So science, this is the enlightenment. Why that word got stuck onto Buddhism, I don't have a clue, but it's useful. 
And the usage of it is, is that you can see the word enlightenment, that the whole word is built around the word light. With a front end and a tail end, but the word light. Well, here we go. How do we use the word light? We use the word daylight, shine a light on it. Let's put some light on this situation. It has to do with looking and investigating and seeing. That's why we put we bring a flashlight into the dark room. I've got a flashlight that I have right beside the uh, 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 the the big desktop because I want to see when I'm looking into it. I don't want to have just the room's light. I want to have a big strong um, light in there so that I can really see what I'm doing. This is the useful word for enlightenment because it has to do with the fact that we can really see what's going on. Knowledge. Then we have the other word light, like uh, not heavy, lighten up. Uh, uh, angels are known to fly because they take themselves so lightly. Okay, this is the deliverance that the deliverance then is the knowledge of how to break the Kalesa. How to break these bonds, if we can shine a light on it and say, oh, here's the reason the lid of that uh, device won't come off is because I've got yet another screw to take out. But if I can't see that screw, then I'm going to probably harm that device getting the lid off of it because I'm taking the lid off of it when there's still a screw in place and I need to check all the screws. All right. Same thing like that with a lug bolt type trying to change a tire and you only take four of the five lug bolts off <laughs> and you're not looking. If you're not looking and don't see it, then you can't take it off. You can't deliver yourself from it to get the wheel off. This is the way of uh, understanding then these kilesas are keeping us from being free. But we don't understand what it is that's doing that. And so we need this knowledge first. And that um, this, uh, these first three fetters then ties very, very well back with the combination of the kilesa and the asava. Uh, especially in the sense of the Saba Asava Sutta, Sutta number two, where it says that what is worthy of attention? What's worth spending our time on? What's worthy of us paying attention to? And that uh, most people who get into religion um, or even muse about it. The musing is what I'm talking about of uh, paying attention to our musings and that uh, we muse about who am I? We muse about the past. We muse about the future. We muse about our relationships with things that we don't have a clue about, like having a lot of people muse about having a relationship with Jesus or having a relationship with God. Others muse about going to a Donald Trump rally. There's all kinds of musings that we do <clears throat> that build our identity of this is who I am. 
And the Buddha says that this kind of um, take, spending our time or this uh, is this unwise attention. It's unwise attention because it does not gain us any value. And not only that, but it leads to a pack of, uh, of views, a thicket of views. And uh, there is another kind of wise, uh, a kind of wise attention. And that wise attention is such that when we pay attention to things through wise attention, then it makes everything easy. That we begin to uh, eliminate these asava, that we see these pebbles and we can pop them out. And then the Buddha says that when one uh, is paying wise attention, what is it that we're paying wise attention to? And the Buddha then says, paying wise attention to this, this is dukkha. This is the source of the dukkha, not this. This is the source of the dukkha. This is what it's like to be free from that dukkha. And this is the path leading to that, or this is the method that we get from doing this into doing this. <clears throat> and uh, in the Saba Asaba Sutta, the, the next line says is that one who pays wise attention to this is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. This is the end of dukkha. And this is the way to the end of dukkha. When one pays wise attention to that, three fetters are abandoned in him. What are the three? The first one is personality view. In other words, when we begin to see our selfishness causes dukkha, then we don't act so selfish anymore. When we can see that uh, our relationship to the outside world is problematic and we really need to change the way that we deal with it. And this is what is referred to in the uh, in the Pali as Sila Bhatta Paramasa. And it's the way that we deal with an abstract world. It's our set of rules, it's our set of standards. And those the standards that are most damaging are the standards that we hold from our for ourselves that we do not meet up to. And so we gain a, a sense of failure, a sense of um, weakness, a sense of victimhood, because we cannot live up to our own standards. And when we see that not living up to our own standards causes us consternation, frustration, and dissatisfaction, we will stop holding ourselves up to standards. Okay. And then the third one, which is the full eradication of doubt. But in this case, the eradication of the doubt is very specific in the sense that now we have knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path. This is a big deal to really understand what the real path is, this eightfold noble path that the Buddha has set out. We really understand it and really know it only because we've been practicing it well with this um, 
Four Noble Truths perspective on things. When we put this eight noble truth and look at where's the dukkha in this and what's the cause of dukkha and how can I step right out of it into a state of being non-dukkha or uh, dukkha naroda or another word for it would be sukha. To bring about a state of sukha, that's the path because we practice that over and over and over again and we know that it works without a doubt. And there goes that victimhood because victimhood always is packed, loaded, packed with doubt. I'm not good enough. All right. But now we know that we've got it. Okay. It is often referred to, and uh, Westerners really jump onto that these three fetters. Uh, knowledge of personality view, knowledge that our selfishness causes us problems, knowledge of our relationship with the outside world causes all of our problems, and the knowledge of the path that gets us out of all of that stuff. No doubt about it. Those three things put together is often referred to, that's the soda palm. Have you ever heard of that? It ain't so. But it's part of it. Let us say that this is absolutely the foundation or the floor for soda pine. But as that doubt diminishes, it diminishes into um, a new relationship with the world so that we become friends with the world. We become friends with ourselves that we in fact want to see our own wrongdoing. And we see it in a friendly way because most people want to hide their mistakes. I mean, haven't you ever lied? I mean, little black lies, little white lies all over the place. There's all these lies because we're trying to protect ourselves from not meeting our own standards. When we stop having those standards, then we stop seeing things as wrong and bad and mistakes and we start seeing them then as a learning opportunity <clears throat> hey that's hot i'm not going to touch that anymore is completely different from oh you should not be touching those hot things they burn you you know okay there's a completely different and so we change that attitude of oh, you should not be touching hot things into wow Look at it when you do so touch something hot to recognize how hot that is quickly so you don't stay there long doing a lot of damage. And so uh, this is the real soda pond is that one who is now steeped in and staying in the Dhamma most of the time. In other words, we we start gaining the habit of hello, Corey. Welcome aboard. Hi, we're right in the middle of it, so I'll let you just kind of hang in there and catch up with us. We're talking about the fetters, the kilesa. And so uh, when we are practicing these first three fetters, remembering to look and remembering to see these of uh, these four noble truths over and over and over again we get into the habit of seeing things through the lens of the four noble truths 
We begin to see things that way. We begin to recognize dukkha wherever it might be. This is a habit that we get into and that the Buddha talks about it in the sense of, of two examples. One example is the young monk who is in the Wat, though he's doing the Wat Wat's duties. He's got, let us say, sweeping. So though he's got duties in the Wat, though he's got a life to live and all the other stuff, the number one thing that he's got on his mind always is the Dhamma. He's thinking about it. He's looking for it. He's looking for people talking together about the Dhamma so that he can eat, listen over here. He's going to go sweep close to them so that he can listen to what they're saying. Okay. The other example is a, a cow that has a young calf, a newborn calf. And though she continues to eat the grass, she's got an eye on that calf. She's going to make sure that that calf is well protected. Uh, no other animals, there's no dogs or uh, ponies or uh, big cats or anything going to get close to that uh, calf without having to deal with that cow. She's going to be right there on it. She's going to take care of it. Okay. This is now a new kind of dedication that we have for the Dhamma, that you're going to start to become a mother calf or mother cow tending a baby calf of nobility. And how we're going to do that, uh, protecting that young calf of nobility, is by making sure that we're on guard for any dukkha that can get in. Okay, so this is, by the way, a five-step, uh, step, the fifth knowledge on the way to Sotapan, to where knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path, that's the third stage. So we go through that first. Then we go through the uh, the point of stop seeing our faults as faults, stop seeing our mistakes as mistakes, and start seeing them as learning opportunities, start seeing that it's sometimes we need to confess to the teacher and straighten that out and get things straightened out rather than letting them fester. And we begin to have a dedication to the Dhamma. The next one, step six, the sixth knowledge is the knowledge that we become actually eager. We really, really enjoy thinking about the Dhamma. It's almost like dukkha, dukkha everywhere, and boy, can I spot it. <laughs> and then the full-on sotapan that's got these three uh, fetters knocked down. The, the seventh knowledge is the knowledge of great joy, the knowledge of delight, that we are not just seeing the dukkha everywhere, but we take delight in that we can see it everywhere. That we see things delightfully. We see that we can, in fact, uh, have the skills to get out of the way of that stuff. So this is the state of soda pine now these first three knowledges put into full application to where now we can move on to the fourth and the fifth fetters which were your question so all of this is just to build up to your question and i think that now that we've gotten this far you can almost answer the question yourself because at this stage of the soda pond he's got the skills to take care of them one by one as they occur. And that's how we're going to deal with this better of greed and ill will 
these these twin fetters that um, actually drag us out of that good state of delight that I had just mentioned. And so we're going to be careful. We're going to be watchful. We're going to be on guard. We're going to be able to sustain this joy by being uh, mindful of these two twin fetters that come up. And that one of the ways that you can look at it, um, I would actually, now that I'm thinking about it, suggest this um, in the sense of ill will is start uh, a, uh, an anger journal. Not that you're going to write down a great deal of detail about how and why you're angry and what pissed you off and all of that, but rather maybe just the time that the anger occurred and how big was it? Was it 10 seconds or was it 10 hours? Was it an explosion or was it a, a slow boil? That kind of thing is all you need to do to start tracking our anger. Because anger is the dukkha and anger is the, the, the number one item on this better number five. Now, as we progress, what happens actually um, though in the literature, it talks about it in the way that there is um, a stage called the um, uh, Sotapan, Sakyagami, Anagami, and Arahat. And the Sakyagami is the, the, uh, the Sotapan who is really paying attention and really tracking the times that he wanted something. If you can get pretty good at tracking when you're angry. So that it's been weeks or months or you can see the gaps in it that wow, it's been that long and then the cops stopped me <laughs> and now I've got anger. OK, so I'm going to write that down and we begin to see the gaps. How long has it been? Has it been two or three months? It's been two or three years since you've gotten angry. This is a good way of checking yourself to see how often um, <clears throat> that we do get angry so that we can uh, monitor that. Once we start to monitor the anger, we can also start to monitor our greed. And the reason that I'd put it in that order is because the greed is far more often. You'd be writing a whole lot of journals. But if you start writing with the anger, that will also kind of automatically take care of it. So when you start doing a journal of all the moments of time when you're in greed, you can recognize that a lot of them you don't even want to put down there. Like the greed to go to the toilet. That's not necessary. <laughs> but rather the greed to go to town. Now that's a big one. Or the greed that it takes to get into an argument with someone. That's a big one. So there's, we start uh, writing down the bigger greeds and look at the gaps. How long has it been since I've acted like an asshole because I wanted something? And so um, when we begin to track the greed and track uh, the anger, we're actually able to track it only because we've already identified that the greed and the anger and uh, whatnot is not a part of the path. 
And remember that we talked about that we have knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path is anger and greed. Wanting things that we don't have. And we're talking about here in a kind of a big way because these are the things that become obvious. If it can be seen, it's big. And so we want to, uh, to do that. So an example of getting angry would be getting into an argument. So somebody says yak yak and you say yak 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 and they say yak 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 and you say yak and then you stop and say wait a minute that's angry I'm going to go get my journal hang on a minute. <laughs> and pretty soon we begin to sing or so that when they say yak yak and we go ah and then we stop just one note. We just let it out just one time. Okay, that's so big progress because in the beginning, uh, they say that we can be angry and remain angry for, let us say, seven opportunities in a row of selfishness to prove that we're angry. We go yak, 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 yak you know, up to now full blown argument. But as we gain skill in this, we're going to get it down to just one. We're just going to let that anger out just one time. And as soon as we let that out, we said, wait a minute, I caught it. <laughs> I caught that loud voice. So begin to monitor for your loud. When you get loud, recognize it. That's a good opportunity to uh, uh, catch these fetters. And so reducing the number of them so that you can begin to get to the point of when you get angry, you don't let it out. You massage it in place. But in fact, the massaging is, hey, I was about to get angry, but I didn't. Ha ha. My, what a good little meditator am I. I caught it before <laughs> it even got out of my mouth. <laughs> And so this is then the progress from the Sotapan through the Saktiagami up to the Anagami as the Anagami is fast enough to shut his mouth before he opens it. Okay, Corey, glad to see you. So this is how we begin to manage these fetters because we've got the skills built up through the practice as well as we've got the knowledge of how to deal with them. Because most people, they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the skills. They don't even have sometimes the knowledge that uh, getting angry creates more problems for the self or one's individual. I mean, there's the dukkha. If you're angry, you're in dukkha. No matter how much or whatever happens, you're in dukkha when you're angry. And probably what will happen is that you'll spread that dukkha to other people, get them angry and upset also. And so now it's multiplying. All right. So, uh, but most people don't know that because when we get angry, we almost always get angry because we're covering up fear. That anger is a better response than fear. So if we get angry, that means that we are protecting ourselves from a loss. That it's either we're either have just lost it, 
like you get the water bill. What? $150 water bill? You know, like that. We just lost $150 when I was expecting to lose 30. Or the other possibility is uh, uh, that is that you're about to lose something. Like they send you a notice saying next month something's going to happen and you don't like it. So it's either the notice that you have lost something or that you're about to lose something. And that and we don't like that because we feel a sense of loss. We sense a sense of fear, a sense of having something been taken away from us. OK, and so our response to that is anger makes us feel strong. The old guy that has the high water bill would rather stomp around his house for five minutes than just set the bill down and forget about it. Because he's not wise. He doesn't recognize. He thinks that stomping around makes him feel powerful, and his only option is, is to feel cheated. So... What that means is, is that when we begin to work with our own anger, we need to remove that layer of the anger itself, which we do out of gratification. In other words, we like getting angry because it's a whole lot better than being fearful. But when we recognize that that anger itself uh, may be gratifying because it makes us feel better, it actually is very dangerous. And that, in fact, it does not have the benefit that this, the angry feelings is just as bad or worse than the, than the uh, uh, than the fear feelings anyway, that we really didn't help anything. We made it worse. And when we recognize that we're making it worse, now we can begin to peel back the anger and start looking at the fear. Well, now, this is very interesting. We're talking about a kind of a long progression into it. I mean, look, we're already soda ponds. We've got all of this knowledge and vision, and we're working on this stuff, and now we're going to deal with fear? No, actually, we started dealing with fear right from the very get-go anyway. We're already fairly skilled at recognizing this fear by telling ourselves right now, when we're in seclusion and there is nothing to fear, we still get afraid anyway. So let's start dealing with that level of fear, the fear that's just there because of habit. And when we can come out of that fear and bring ourselves into a state of joy that is, uh, that is safe and secure and comfortable and satisfying, this is the reason that we practice that, because that is a better alternative than the anger-fear uh, complex that we have normally been dealing with things. And so this is where we deal with that. Let's see. Okay, so uh, Miguel, you have a question. You need to unmute your mic. Unmute. Okay, <laughs> I think that the mic is, is the blue button. It's got a microphone uh, and it should have a bar through it. Because I see it. No, if you're on Does your anybody... phone, you should be able to unmute it with the microphone. Just press the micro, press the screen. 
And there should be a microphone you could press. Okay. You can just press Control Control M too. A Control M is a PC. He's on a. Uh, he's uh, probably on by the By the way things are moving, he's on a cell phone. He's not on a PC. You're still muted. <laughs> Isn't the mute button someplace? I don't know what cell phone he's got, so I'm not sure. But there's got to be a, a, a microphone symbol there. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll let uh, uh, McGill deal with his microphone and we'll uh, continue on. And when you get it going, just say something, Miguel. We'll hear you. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we had uh, just stopped at the point about the combination of fear and anger and how the fear brings upon the anger. And we bring up the anger because it makes us feel better, gives us a feeling of power, a feeling of superiority and whatnot like that that covers up that fear. Uh, and so if we can begin then to see this, now we can dispense with the anger and start looking at the fear directly about why do we become afraid just because the laptop broke? Why do we become afraid just because the cops stop us? Why do we become afraid just because the doctor told me I've got colon cancer? I know I've been an asshole my whole life. He doesn't have to hear it from him. <laughs> but we do. We become afraid because we cling to things. And so this is the introduction then into the higher fetters is the mental stuff. And so it kind of goes all around full circle because we were dealing with the mental stuff already from the beginning when we were in seclusion. So now what we're looking at is, is that if we can learn to deal with that stuff in seclusion where we're actually secluded from real problems. And deal with the and deal with only our own mind, then when we get back out into the world and deal with them with real problems, we can deal with them with the finesse and the joy that we're able to deal with with them when they were very small or just merely mental in our own mind. OK. Uh, and so this is the and by the way, the issue would be, let us say that somebody does go to the doctor. And gets diagnosed with colon cancer. When he goes home, what is his options? If he has the option of, hey, I can handle this, let me change my diet, let me do a few things, let me look at what's going on. 
then he might have a different. But if somebody goes home and says, oh, poor me, this is terrible. I don't know what happened. And I'm, you know, and they get themselves all worked up and in a state of, let us say, a lot of stomach acid that, in fact, the acid may, in fact, have something to do with colon cancer. That if we can get bland inside, that may help cure that colon cancer. That that's one of the things about cancer that they uh, that they don't understand it well enough. But some psychologists actually use the phrase of cancer as eating oneself alive. In the same vein that oh, a heart attack—that means your heart attacked you. What were you doing to the poor thing? <laughs> it brought back. <laughs> <laughs> So um, it depends then upon how we can train our attitude. So that if we can train the attitude, we can actually overcome these higher fetters. But the first uh, five, the lower fetters are actually higher and lower is not correct. Obvious and uh, subtle would be a much better way of looking at it. Uh, in the pollen, they talk about it, Rupa and Arupa. Okay, so um, rather than getting into a an overly detailed um, examination of the high five or the higher fetters or the Arupa fetters, it would be better to look at some of them, the ones that are really important anyway. And 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 deal with the others, but we can say that. Well, wait a minute. We there's really only one that we have to deal with, and that's the issue of the fear. And that if we can come to a point to where we see life as wonderful but temporary. Imagine two old ladies that have just seen each other, uh, um, haven't seen each other for a long time, and they come to meet. When they come to meet, they're very, very glad to see each other, right? And they will stand and talk and reminisce and be overjoyed to see each other. But then something happens and it's time to go. One of them will think of something. Oh, I've got to move on. I got to go. All right. The same thing happens in all meetings. Anytime that you come to someone uh, and have a greeting and an introduction, it doesn't last long and then it's over. Right. OK, your life is that way, too. Your life is short. Enjoy it. Greet it like the best friend you ever had, knowing that you're going to have to say goodbye to it really soon. And that's going to be okay. Time to move on. You're going to spend a whole lot more time dead than you do alive. And no, you know what? The best part about being dead is you don't miss a thing. <laughs> And we cling to life because we think we're going to miss something, miss out. So this issue of fear is really deeply buried and it's uh, mentioned in uh, the list of um, fetters as a Rupa Raga <clears throat> and Rupa Raga. Miguel, you got your hand up again, but your microphone is still uh, muted. <laughs> okay. 
so talking about rupa and a rupa raga um western buddhism often mis misunderstands that because of the way that the language works is it um rupa raga what that means is uh rupa is physical the life itself you could say and raga is a very very deep clinging we cling to life a uh, that's rupa raga um every species clings to life even if you cut a snake in half those two halves will try to crawl off to stay alive right that's just everything is like that there's a deep clinging it's called by the way the self-preservation instinct but it's always going to eventually fail. Things are going to be over with. This is where we look at it in the sense of uh, a Rupa Raga is then um, our, our, our lust or our clinging to getting over it, finishing it off, being done with it, okay? We do that with relationships. I'm done here. We do it with jobs. I we're really glad to leave that old job. We've had enough of it and we want to go someplace else. And so this is what we mean by the A Rupa Raga. It, it has to do then as the exact opposite of the Rupa Raga. And the Rupa Raga and the A Rupa Raga are wrapped around fear. Fear of am I going to survive or not? But if we see life as the way that I introduced it with two old ladies who come together and joyfully are really glad to see each other for a short time and then it's over, that's how we begin to see that it's really going to be okay that we die. We'll get over it. Or we won't. Even if we don't survive, that's okay. And so we can begin to deal with our fear that way also, that in fact, just as we're sitting in meditation and recognizing that there's no alligators on the floor, there's no spiders on the keyboard, everything is okay and safe right now, we can take the kind of the longer picture then and recognize I'm going to die and that's okay. I can handle that. There's nothing to be afraid of. Okay, so there is an alligator on the on, on the <laughs> on the porch right now. I wonder which leg he'll get first. <laughs> that in fact there is a um a suta. Uh, I don't know where it is. I've only heard about it, and I haven't actually uh, seen it. And it may in fact be Mahayana, but the story is is that the young monk gets uh, chased by a tiger. And while he is, uh, uh, when he's caught, the tiger starts to eat him. And as the tiger is eating his legs, he becomes a soda pond. And as the tiger is coming up to the waist, he becomes an anagami. And just as he dies, he becomes an arahat. Okay. This is, in, in other words, the letting go of, okay, I can handle this. Yeah, having my leg eaten by an alligator is not as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> And so this is because we, we begin to get in a, a state of acceptance. So 
this acceptance of what happens then is what really frees the Arahat is because he becomes completely fearless in all cases, even the ones that would be dangerous. Now, this is kind of a problem for Arahats because that would mean that at any opportunity for them to die, they would. And yet an Arahat is very, very precious to his friends around him. They want to keep him alive, and so they want to keep him protected. So this gives rise to the uh, to the myth or to the story about that if someone becomes an Arahat and is not ordained, he should become ordained in order to survive, that someone is not going to survive as an Arahat out in this world because it's too darn dangerous and that we have our self-preservation instincts built in for most people that keeps us alive and the Arahat doesn't give a flying rip about his instincts. He doesn't care. And because he doesn't care, he probably is going to get killed. I mean, it's pretty dangerous to walk up to a cobra when it's up on its hind legs of the way that they stand and, and, and give him a kiss, especially a French kiss. Not a good idea. <laughs> but we, you and I can automatically see the danger in that. But when we're completely fearless, now we need to keep our fear managed with wisdom. Uh, fortunately, most Arahats know that even though they don't feel danger, they still will avoid the snake. Because the Buddha said to avoid snakes. That's a, snakes are something to be avoided. As well as rogue elephants and tigers and cesspools and there are things to be avoided and he's got a long list of them so uh we do that then with wisdom because we have managed our instincts to the point that we do not allow the <clears throat> uh instinct of fear to rule our lives anymore so this is where wisdom comes in. We have to watch what we're doing with wisdom because we don't care about whether we're afraid anymore because the fear is nothing to it. So that's one of the ways then of talking about these a rupa raga and rupa raga or these higher fetters. If we can get a handle on that and understand that, then we can also look at another one, and the and another one would be um, conceit. The Pali word for it is mana, and what we recognize in conceit is is that we have a competitive nature. The competition is built instinctually. It comes in with both the nesting and the uh, procreation and the. Uh, um, the territorial instinct, it really shines big in the territorial instinct in the sense of this is my territory, these are my people, and those other people are dangerous. Those other people, we don't know them. And so we begin to get tribal and territorial and, and this kind of thing. And that's where the, all of this competition comes in. But when we really look at what's going on, we recognize that each individual who is involved in a particular situation that we can refer to as a competition 
each player comes to that competition with his own set of criteria about who is, what is a winner and what is a loser. So that the reality is, is that whether you win or lose the competition that you're engaged in, you've already decided. You already know whether you're going to win or lose because you're the one who set up the criteria for this, probably out of a set of old rules and standards that you kept. And when you recognize it all, you either win or lose a competition, not because he's better than you are or you're better than him, but you won or lost the competition based upon the criteria that you used to judge what is winning and losing. That's the whole point. So if we come into the competition with a loser's attitude, then we're naturally going to lose this competition. Now, almost always, uh, in fact, uh, it's, it, it's more written in the uh, 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 in the Abhidharma. Uh, the, the description of these higher fetters in the sense of make a distinction between envy and jealousy as opposed to uh, pride, because almost always in a competition, you're going to wind up with either winning and being prideful or losing. And if you're losing, you're either going to lose with jealousy or envy. And let me describe what the, what the difference is. But if, uh, let us say, if a girl has a boyfriend and that boyfriend um, sees her with another guy, then he will have jealousy because he feels like he's going to lose something that he already has. But envy means that the other guy who sees this guy with his girlfriend and he wants the girlfriend. So now that's envy. He is envious of her because he wants her and the other guy's got her. And these are the kind of things that we wind up with when we compete. We either wind up in pride or we wind up in uh, in jealousy or in um, envy. But the cure for that is the wisdom of knowing that, hey, we set that competition up anyway. It was all in our mind anyway. And if we can see that, then we can recognize, oh, I can start setting up the competition so that I win every one of them. All I have to do is just choose the right way of looking at it, and I've won. An example of that is if I can get this guy to yell at me, I've won. He's angry. It doesn't matter what it is. You can pick your own criteria for how you win. And then you win every contest. Well, what happens when you win every contest? Don't you get a little bored of all of this competition when you know you're going to win anyway? And by the way, all of these people that you're competing with are your friends. So why are you going around making your friends feel bad just because you're better than they are and you set that up anyway in your own mind? You don't really know what's in their mind. They may be just as smart and wise and Dhamma dudes as you are, and they're winning their game too. So 
if we recognize that you do win every game that you play when you're doing it wisely, you also recognize that there's a lot of extra effort in this that we don't have to put in. Why compete when I know I'm going to win? I'm going to win this thing. I'm not bothered to compete. Yes, Scott. Okay, so um, what you just said is really interesting to me. Um, so let's say uh, deeply in love with his girlfriend, and then uh, this other guy uh, takes the girl. Okay, so like normally speaking, like that guy's gonna be jealous, right? And like he's gonna feel like a loser. How, wait, mm -hmm. how would you? How how does he like see that as a winner? Well, along the way, what happened was that it's unlikely for the guy to be so asleep that this other guy came in and just took his girl. That's possible. People can be that asleep. Ordinary people, they lose things and they don't even see the process of, of losing it. But normally what happens is, is that when uh, the first occurrence was that he saw his girlfriend with this guy when they were just introducing her at a distance. And it was in his mind that he put him together. You were the one that said, in fact, uh, Scott, that he lost her. I bet he lost her more from his jealousy than he, than he lost her from the other guy got her. That in fact, if we get jealous, we'll act jealous. But if we can recognize that yet yeah, my girlfriend can have a conversation with another man, and I don't have to, in my mind, put them together. They were not together. They were standing two feet apart from each other. Why didn't, in my mind, did I put them together so that I would say, oh, he's taking my girlfriend? That in fact, the guy who lost his girlfriend could have been the reason himself, his jealousy drove her away. And he didn't ever know that. He didn't watch okay. what was going on. All right, so let's say that that happened. Then, then what? <laughs> oh, after you've lost the girl? Yeah. How do you know you've lost her? I okay, just like <laughs> let's say let's say uh she flies to China <laughs> or South Korea <laughs> gets with marries a South Korean dude. <laughs> There's no coming back, okay? It's just it's done. <laughs> just out of the blue, huh? No, maybe not maybe it's a progression of things, like everything, right? But I'm just well, saying like um no, yeah. things happen out of the blue. That's actually quite possible. Doesn't happen in Korea, but if she goes to Paris, she might find something. Right. But if she does go to Paris and find something and wants to stay over for a while, that still doesn't mean that the guy in America has lost her. She may get tired of France and come back. The losing is still in his mind. 
And if he if he operates that wave, then for sure that he's he's lost her. The other possibility is that he can get over it. If he lost her, then so what? He got along without her before he met her. He can get along without her now. That in fact, uh, you probably heard this yourself. I've heard it. That oftentimes a relationship is finished because, let us say, in this case, the girl dumped the guy and she dumped him because she was afraid it happened in the past that when she got dumped, she felt really bad. So it's better to end a relationship by dumping someone than it is to get dumped. So I ask you for yourself in your own mind, which is it better to dump or to be dumped? Dump, of course. Dump, huh? of course. Dump? To dump. To, to dump. dump. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when she went to Korea, you dumped her. She's gone. <laughs> and if she comes back, that's good. That's a great way to think of it, too. Instead of it's happening to me, you know, victim, it's just part of nature. Huh? Exactly, exactly. So getting dumped is something that happens to a loser and dumping is something that the winner does when he's moving on. And I just Which, went through that recently. <laughs> and, and I'm glad you got your microphone going, too. <laughs> well, I got, I, got um, I went from the phone to the computer. OK. But, um, yeah, I uh, I normally had been dumped. But this time I did the dumping. Um, and, you know, I, I felt a little bit bad about it, but, you know, it was for my, I was following my truth. I just knew it wasn't going to work out. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, it wasn't like I'm, I want to get out first because in the past, you know, I would always be dumped. But um, I also see I at work, I've, you know, been fired a couple times. One time was um, with downsizing, but I could have seen it coming. And now that I look back, I did see it coming. Uh huh. Uh -huh. And that's a great, it's a great um, lesson. Yes, exactly. So that's another example of what we're talking about. Is it better to get fired or to quit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting that's fired, that's something that happens to a victim. Quitting is something that you do as a winner. Right. And that, I just did that, too. I uh, retired at the end of January. And Congratulations. Welcome to the old man's club. <laughs> hey, I love it. I should have done it a lot sooner, but hey, uh, 65 in one month. <laughs> but um, I just realized that I hated the job and uh, why prolong it? And so I told them, see you later. And that was the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Scott, there, there you go. That's a, that's a part of it then, is that if you're willing to let her go, then you can do the dumping in your own mind. Never mind that she's already packed her bags and, and left. You can slam the door. Or you could be victimized. Which which is your choice? If you've really lost her, then say happily goodbye to her. 
Or like uh, Miguel is saying, I saw that coming. <laughs> and that's what it is. I mean, you want to be mindful. Mm -hmm. And and you sh you know that I can go in the past and I can see what led up to things means I can do it in present tense, right in the now. Precisely so. That's exactly right. That we can, in fact, learn from our mistakes if we stop seeing them as mistakes and start seeing them as learning yep. opportunities. Lessons. Mm -hmm. In fact, isn't it, do you, at the end of the day, I, at the end of the day, have started asking myself, reviewing the day, and then what lessons did I learn? And, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, but you're supposed to learn something every day. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a lot of work. Not really. Uh, I think it's good I hear that. I hear that. I hear that. Okay. Um, a lot of work. Sounds like a lot of work. It's even more work when you do it the other way, which I was about to mention. And that is, is that you don't wait to the end of the day to do a reflection, that you keep that reflection going. Oh, I like How that. was this? How are things right now? And that's really a, a measure of being in the now. Mm -hmm. Yes, start remembering to be in the now. And right. like that. beginners automatically see, that, oh, that's a whole lot of work. Well, it is if you don't have the skills. If you, if you don't have the mental muscles, then things are heavy. That's why we practiced lightly. We keep practicing with reps and reps. You know that uh, they even use the word repetition or reps in uh, um, in the gym. But you don't just do one heavy thing one time. You do light things over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so we do that for short periods of time during the, uh, the uh, let us say, four, five, six times a day for about 10 minutes. We do that. A lot of students immediately want to start doing it all day long, and then they get tired and frustrated. But I would recommend, no, you only want to do this Anapanasati practice for a total of about an hour a day, broken up into, let us say, six 10-minute sessions. So that you can really practice it and really massage it and really, really get it going. That a brand new piano student, let us say in his first or second year of, of practicing piano, that if he puts in 30 minutes of practice a day, he's going to make good progress. If his mother makes him sit in front of that keyboard all day long, he's going to hate it. All right, so don't think that you've got to practice Anapanasati all the time, but we do want to build it up as a skill. We want to do the repetition, we want to do it often and do it often and do it often. And then it begins to happen spontaneously. That now it happens without it being a lot of work. It also happens spontaneously in a way that we're not making a lot of rules about it. You see, if you think that you've got to do it all day long, then whenever you don't do it, you feel bad because you've made some sort of stupid rule. Sounds like a lot of work, right? Okay, 
here's how it's not a lot of work is by we do it easily, but we do it with repetition over and over and over and over again. And that repetition then builds the new synapses so that they start working automatically on their own. Someone wrote that it took about 400 times, 400 reps to build a new synapse, unless you really enjoy what you're doing, and then the synapses get built a whole lot faster. So doing those repetitions. Go ahead, Miguel. Oh, maybe view it as a game too. But yes, if you're if you've got your um, warrior at the gate of your mind and you've been practicing, you know, am I going negative or going in the future? Uh, you eventually get to the point where that that's kind of a game. Mm -hmm. You know, how quickly can I can I grab onto that? And then you you grab onto in your interactions with with people because that's usually when the anger comes in <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or you get a bill in the mail. But you. Um, you start to see the bigger picture, I think. That right. Exactly, that that bigger picture. A way of talking about it is you've heard the cycle of samsara. Some cycles are fast, some are slow. But mm -hmm. when we're on the cycle, if we're at this part of the cycle, then when the cycle gets up here, we don't like it. And then later we get down to this part. Can you hang on another five minutes? I'm about to finish. Oh, he's already oh. gone. Okay, so when we're on this cycle, and this part of the cycle happens and we like it. Then when we get to this part of the cycle, we don't like it. And then we get to this part of the cycle and we like it again, right? But when we draw back and recognize, hey, this cycle is going on and here I was caught up in the liking and not liking while I was on that cycle. If I would draw back, I could see things a whole lot better. And now I can enjoy the whole cycle. So, uh that's the uh a way of uh, of understanding is is by getting a little distance and getting a little perspective we can see things over time better this is why we want to keep investigating and keep investigating until we can begin to see oh not just this happened and then this happened and then this happened but recognize oh this keeps repeating over and over again this whole cycle of stuff this is all just one big thing an example of, of it is is uh how how a wheel just rolls and rolls over and over again. And things are sometimes up and sometimes down. Now, actually, this point leads us to the, the last fetter that I'll mention today, and that's the fetter of ignorance. Funny how we started with ignorance and wind up in ignorance. But the whole point is ignorance starting up leads to dukkha, but now the ignorance is the, the last fetter on the list, the last one. Why? What is that about? The answer can be seen in the sense of the quality of enough. How much information is enough? Because that's what we're looking for. We're not going to be knowledgeable about everything. We will, in fact, remain ignorant. The question is, can we be uh, able to choose 
what we need to know and then get that known and let everything else that we don't need to know and leave it alone rather than lusting for it too. We don't have to know everything. We just need to know enough. What do we need to know? We need to know how to be happy, how to be carefree, how to be easygoing, how to enjoy our meetings with uh, people or even our own lives, and then enjoy the meeting and then let it go when it's time. This is all we really need to know. And I don't need to know the name of every important philosopher. I don't need to know all the details of a religion. I don't need to know even all of the, the suttas. I don't need to know all of that. We only need to know enough. And just enough, just a little dabble, do you? That's actually an attachment too, isn't it? If you want to keep on knowing things. Oh, they call them scholars. And boy, oh. do we have a lot of Buddhist scholars. If they would stay with the Four Noble Truths, they would learn a lot, but they don't. They want more data. They want more information. They want uh, more suttas to read. That's part of the uh, the um, the scientific religion is knowledge acquisition, it seems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're... Uh, We've been drawing on for a while. I think that this is a good time to, to stop. Yeah. Scott, are you satisfied now with our little discussion of the fetters? We haven't covered them all, but we've put them in sequence and got a, a kind of a handle on how this stuff works. Oh, I didn't, I'm not the one who asked about the fetters. I huh? did, but I was the one who asked. But yes, thank you. That, that, <laughs> thank that you for was a very, very I'm satisfied, uh, though. No, that, that was right. very helpful and interesting. Well, Rana, I, I do have one question. Can you hang on for, sure. for a minute? Um, it, just, it just has to do with anger. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering, um, for someone who doesn't have the grasp that, um, that you might have of, of this, and um, how do you get them out of anger? You know, if, How do uh, you get them out of anger? Yeah, if you if you've Who's got some, the M, the left ear and the right ear. Mm -hmm. Well, because, how can, how can <laughs> I help that, that, the the anger is between them? <laughs> when when someone is, is expressing anger, what's the mm -hmm. best way to help them trans get past that? All right, well, we can take a few minutes to talk about that. I appreciate. it. The, the first thing is the difference between whether they're angry at you or angry at something else, because mm -hmm. this will influence how you handle it. The second thing to look at is, um, do we have to deal with our own anger also? In other words, when he's angry, I'm more than likely going to want him to stop being angry, and I'll want him to stop being angry, bad enough to get angry and pissed off at him for being angry. No, that's not happening. Okay. So if you can maintain your cool, mm -hmm. because if if that's the case, the uh, if in fact we can't maintain our cool, then the thing to do then is to gain seclusion or get our distance, to walk away, go mm -hmm. to the toilet, say, I'll be back in a, in a jiffy. 
Okay. And that jiffy takes years. <laughs> or I'll be I'll be right back, something like that. Okay, but get out of that situation because you're not dealing with it very well. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just a potty break would be enough to get calmed down so that you can come back and talk to him again. And it, this conversation may take three potty breaks. Yeah. Okay. But if you can handle it so that you don't need to get your own seclusion to get your mind, if your mind is already in, in a state of joy, then the way to handle him is by remaining joyful and let him see your joy and that in fact uh when it becomes obvious then you can begin to talk to him in the sense of well it's not really that big of a deal and mm -hmm. you can get over it okay but you can only do that with him if he's angry at something else if he's angry at you we need a better uh, right. practice or cooling off. No, it's, but, it's the external stuff. Right. If he's angry at something else, then what you can do is you can well, modify probably it. Probably at himself. Angry at himself. Still, that's even better one in the sense of it's no big deal. Yeah. It's not a big deal at all. I don't understand why you're angry at that. Mm -hmm. I think it's funny. And now you've just changed it. I think it's funny and you start turning it around and now you can start teasing him about it uh -huh. and say, that's such a little thing. And here you are gotten yourself all worked up. I bet you could see uh, how funny it is. You would smile. Mm -hmm. And then you start talking about smiling because there's something about the, the neurophysiology that if you think happy thoughts, the face will smile. But if you put the face in a smiling position, it will help your attitude. They right. even talk about it, about putting a pencil or something between your teeth like that. And just that gesture, making those muscles change, mm -hmm. will, uh, will begin to change the attitude. So the way that you can talk about it is to see if you can tease this guy into having a little smile. And then you can say, aha, I see that smile. That was a little one, but you can do better than that. And I, then he'll I start like to grin. I like that. Okay. Thank you. That's that's great advice. Thank you very much. Right. And so it's a process of of um, uh, of be not in a harsh way, but in a joyful, happy little way. You belittle what he is angry at. Mm -hmm. And then. Right. You you uh, point to him that you don't see that it's worth angry. Why should he? And that if you look at it carefully, it's not worth getting angry at. And yeah. then you start changing the, the table and start talking about smiling and see if you can get him to smile. If you can get him to smile, your job is finished here. Yeah. <laughs> Just poke him a little bit and, and keep, keep smiling myself and laughing. Uh-huh. Exactly. This may take a while. Mm -hmm. This may not give instant success. Right. But if you practice it, you'll gain some skills. Just like you said earlier. Mm -hmm. Got to practice it. Fantastic advice. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and finish this now. Todd, we will see you later. Thank you for your questions. Yeah, Todd. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. I really okay. appreciate it. All right, guys. All right. Have a great week. Bye. Yeah.
Thank Take you care. very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.